I'm a white male South African, which means I was born on the right side of privilege and the wrong side of history. Mm. Now, what am I going to do? That's good. What am I going to do? Yeah. How am I going to steward that? God in his wisdom, I believe, is wise, said, that's who you are. That's who you are, kid. All right? Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Welcome to The Green Room, a space where leaders from the Austin Stone invite college students to have vulnerable conversations about relevant topics. Ross, welcome to The Green Room. Thanks, Mitchell. Nice to be here, brother. Yes, sir. For those who don't know who you are, I would love it if you would just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a pastor at the Austin Stone. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, I'll give you the compact uh, version. So my name's Ross Lester, and I was born in the beautiful city of Johannesburg, South Africa, which is many miles away from here. Um, spent most of my life there. And yeah, pastored a church in Johannesburg, uh, married my wife Sue there. Then we lived briefly in the U.S. in Seattle where I did some studies and then went back and led that church for another uh, seven years. Mm. We've got uh, two kids. We had them in that season, Daniel and Katie. And then I was working with an international church planning organization, helping to plant churches, particularly all over Africa at that time, and met uh, a guy called Kevin Peck, who's <laughs> the lead pastor of the Austin Stone. And turned out he had a wonderful plan for my life, so, <laughs> um, as he does. So uh, him and I started talking a little bit. We, we felt a sense from the Lord, and I know that's a dangerous thing to say, but we felt a sense from the Lord that we would live in the U.S. again at some point. And we also felt a sense from the Lord that my job at the church that I was at wasn't to lead it forever, but was to hand it over to some other young leaders, um, especially some some young leaders who would uh, represent the demographics of that country better than I necessarily did. And so we worked hard at getting ready for that transition, being able to hand the leadership of those church over to those young leaders. And then we were looking for what's next. And uh, that's when Kevin came and knocking. So uh, we moved across to, to Austin three years ago. And Gosh, uh, been three years. Three years uh, wow. this Christmas. Yeah, been leading and serving as the congregation pastor at the West Congregation, which has been a lot of fun. Yes, sir. Ross, since you've been here for three years, you got to tell me, what are some weird things that you've observed about Americans and American culture? Maybe as you've been in Austin, just I would just love to hear your take. Oh man, I'll be uh, as non-offensive <laughs> as possible. It's been fun. It's like it's like living as cross-cultural missionaries, right? I just look at a whole bunch of stuff and go like, "Why do I do that? That's mm. that's crazy." So, number one would have to be your bathroom stalls. Um, oh wow! I don't understand why they leave such huge gaps so that everyone can see everyone else's business. Nowhere else in the world Ooh. does this. Wow. Um, and so American bathrooms are truly traumatic uh, to me. <laughs> I, I try to avoid them at all costs. <laughs> I agree. And so it's a strange, I've researched, I thought it was like an FBI mandate or something. It's like, right. nope, There's this is be just, a, how, just how we build bathrooms. So <laughs> you need to be able to make eye contact, apparently. Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a strange oh, one. Um, your sports are taking some getting used to. Really? They, they, uh, they are interesting. And the leagues that they generate is unbelievable. Well, so I'm um, curious, what of all the American sports, which one is easy? Easiest for you to enjoy? Um, I mean, phrasing the positive. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to just immerse myself in the experience. I watch them all. Baseball's tough. That's that's tough to tough to watch, especially seeing there's nine thousand six hundred and forty-two games in a season. So it's hard to know which one counts. It's like you just watch the last one. (laughs) 
But, I mean, I appreciate the athleticism and the spitting ability. I mean, baseball guys can spit like, is like nobody else. Do they not uh, do that in cricket? No, no. no it's no, frowned no spitting. upon. Spitting. Um, oh, turns yeah. out the rest of the world spitting on other people is not a good thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Or in their general vicinity. So, Football's been interesting, just understanding the technicalities of it. I think yeah. it's, so, it's so American, though. It's so specialized. It's like... Yeah. You're a oh, player, you do this one thing, and that's what you do. And you do it with all you have for, yeah. like, 18 seconds. And then yeah. we watch ads for a while. Yep. <laughs> and then you do it again, you know. So it's been it's just been so interesting to get my head around sports and entertainment and how those two are intertwined mm. in America. So, for instance, if you watch English soccer, English football, it's a relegation promotion system. So the bottom three sides get relegated, and the, mm. the top three sides in the next tier get promoted. And so there's yeah. always this yeah. like, cut mm. and thrust of, like, if you stink, you're out, right? Yep. Um, and NFL, if you're on a franchise, like, you make bajillions, doesn't matter. You're going to lose yeah. all your games. And you get, in fact, you get number one draft pick I discovered yesterday. Yep. <laughs> like, you get rewarded for losing. I was <laughs> yeah, like, that is very this true. is awesome. <laughs> this is like participation trophies. I dig this. Um, this is so fun. So uh, getting into sports and culture, uh, I mean, the way you guys eat, eat super fast. The first few meals we went to at people's houses, we couldn't believe it. Like you arrive and you eat, like that's not a thing. You got to tell us how fast does Kevin Peck eat? Oh, he just breathes in food yes. and it's irrelevant whatever <laughs> food it is. It's just... It's, no, Kevin especially, I've tried to beat him before. Oh, I've, he just breathes it in, man. That's unbelievable. It's just fuel for him. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It just keeps the sucker going. Let's keep moving. So. <laughs> oh, man, but it's been fun. We we enjoy it. It's a it's a blast. You guys obey the rules on the road, which is quaint and, um, and amazing. So <laughs> really? That's, that's, yeah, compared to South Africa, man. Oh, yeah. Like the light turns red, you guys stop most of the time. It's incredible. Most of the time. Um, and so, yeah, and then there's been some other sociological things, you know, like the ingraining of politics into your life is mm. unbelievable. It's been astonishing for us to watch mm-hmm. in this last year especially and uh, realizing that even things like deep friendships are fragile in the face of uh, differing political opinions mm. yeah. you're like wait you would sacrifice this friendship over a political ideology like yeah absolutely it's like wow yeah so that's i'm not i'm not condemning that necessarily i'm just saying that's been a learning for us of being mm. like oh okay that that wouldn't be how we would engage over politics elsewhere Rightly or wrongly, that's just it's just been a learning. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I think it's important for me and our listeners to understand that it's not like this in other parts of the world. <laughs> a lot of times, yeah. it just feels like America is like everything. Like it is the world. It is how sure. the world operates. So, and, and America has been so good at so many things for so long that I can understand why American exceptionalism uh, has grabbed hold as uh, as an ideology. Mm. But when you're in it, you don't really see it yeah. until you travel, and then you realize, like, oh wait, different people do things differently, and and sometimes it's better. You know, sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's better. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's a, traveling is so humbling, man. It's so mm. humbling. You learn so much. As we're leaving 2020 and going into 2021, we're leaving a year where so much has happened. Yeah. Obviously, the pandemic, which we're yeah. still in. Right. But also the political unrest and so much more. But I think one of the most impactful things that happened to me came in May when we learned about Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Mm. So since I'm sitting here with two elders, pastors of our church, I have a question because around that time we saw, you know, top tech giants, athletes, and other people speaking up about the tragedies. But as I glanced on social media or just kind of just observed life, it, it seemed as if maybe churches lagged behind in its response to racial injustice. 
So when it comes to talking about racism, it, it almost seems like churches are just late to the conversation. Ross, being a pastor in America and also South Africa, I would just love to hear your take in as to why that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, first, let me just say I do recognize the irony of a white male <laughs> foreigner um, uh, representing the church in this discussion in some way. It's not lost on me. I'm as bemused by (laughs) it as as anyone else who's listening. So just to say that if you're going, this seems kind of ironic, correct. I do understand that fully and feel the the way to that. I mean, Mitchell, I'd, I'd have some response questions to the question. I mean, I fully get the sentiment that it felt like the church lagged behind, but I guess I would have some response questions on like, when we say church, what do we mean? Mm. Do we mean this church? Do we mean a particular denomination of church? Do we mean the church in America? Do we mean the global church? Mm. You know, because I think there'll be different responses that I'd have to all of those things and, yeah. and perhaps different reasons for those responses. Yeah. So yeah, like in your really sentiment, good. are you thinking like, hey, our church or like the little church stream that we swim in? Or Well, what I, I think that's a really good those are really good questions back. Back in our Church Hurt episode, we kind of posed the same questions, like, what do we mean when yeah. we say church hurt? Yeah. Do we mean the church collectively, like, for yeah. all time? Do we mean, like, our local church? Do we mean, like, a specific church? Or are we talking about the buildings? Like, what are we really talking about? So I think when I think about the church kind of lagging behind in their response to racial injustice. I think what I'm thinking about are white American churches. That's Mm -hmm. more of where I have the eyes to see. Like, I I just see that more, whether it be social media or just, like, in the news and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's good, man. Yeah, I mean, so being a Christian, you want to be able to adopt an attitude of charity and grace to people. So so let me work my way from perhaps best potential reasons to to worst. Uh, Let's not lump everyone in one category. I think for the best potential reasons, there would be some who say, we have spoken frequently on this Mm -hmm. and have made our stands and our statements and are are living out a better way. I do think, unfortunately, those would be in the minority, but there are some that I can think of. And my empathy there is the relentless pressure of social media is that you just have to do it again and again Mm. and again and again. And you're always held to the same timelines of immediacy. It's never enough to go like, no, no, we, we, we repented of this and, and started a, a different path in 1984, right? And here's the documentation and here's where that happened. Here's what we've done since. That's not a sexy statement and isn't received as such. I do think there is a small number of white evangelical churches who found themselves kind of stuck in that space. I think for some it was, we don't know what to say. Mm. And that can be with good motive or with bad motive. The good motive can be like we are heartbroken and we're not sure how to say something that then isn't outright offensive in our effort to want to be an advocate and want to be a voice. I mean, I've done this. I mean, most of my history of working in racial reconciliation and in the fight against racial injustice, I've realized you're going to offend people even when you're trying to help. Mm. And I've made some big mistakes in this. And I think then there's fear in the other area of like fear of losing our white audience, fear of losing our funding. And that's where people just need to learn some boldness Mm. and some guts. And then there would be on the extreme side, but it does exist for sure and is more widely experienced in America than I was prepared for Mm. those who would just be digging their heels in and saying like, no, we don't say something because we don't. we don't care. <laughs> and our hearts are hardened in this area and don't feel like 
there is uh, any form of ongoing injustice. And so we don't try to have any sort of empathy. And so that's not me trying to cop out. That's just me trying to see the nuance and complexity in people that I see leading because there's different responses to each of those different people. Some of them need encouragement. Some of them need just a little bit of encouragement, right? Someone to come alongside them and breathe courage. Some need rebuke. But when you confuse those two things, you, you actually end up silencing everybody. And so my thought on this as a leader is always trying to hear people more clearly and then provoke them where they need to be provoked. Do they need help? Do they need encouragement? I mean, this is First Thessalonians 5, right? Where it tells us that there's going to be those who are lazy, they need to be rebuked. There's going to be those who are faint-hearted, they, they need encouragement. There's going to be those who are weak, they need help. And the job of a pastor, of a leader in a church, even as they look at other churches, is going like, well, which one do you need? Do you, mm-hmm. do you need help? Do you need encouragement? Or do you need a rebuke? And so trying to understand the different motivations for that. So if that sounds too cop-outy, I apologize. But in my kind of nearly two decades experience of trying to work in this space, I've just realized that people are very different and their motivations mm-hmm. for doing things are very different. And I'm not, and Mitchell, to that, to that point, I think it's a really helpful sort of framework to interpret the question of, like, do we lag behind and where we're at? And that's just hard, particularly, I, I would say, for white evangelical church, because there hasn't been a lot of discipleship in this area, it's trying to do all of that in one post. Yep. It's sure. trying to say, we haven't—I think, like you like you said, Ross, there are parts where racism is rampant and it's hardened and no one cares. They're going to just yeah. continue in it with no thought about it. And what's hard about social media is that those people have a lot of platform because of it. Like they can speak, and that becomes hard not to kind of influence the whole. But because we don't talk about it or because we haven't had robust conversations and discipleship that's ongoing, then we have this moment where, like, George Floyd is murdered in the street. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to do a years and years and decades of discipleship in a moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what becomes really difficult in this conversation is to say, what are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying simply to mourn racism? Are we trying to fix it? Are we trying to disciple? Are we try- and it becomes, this moment becomes in some ways doomed to disappoint everybody because there's no way to accomplish all that we want to accomplish in this moment. And so I think that's what this summer has revealed is there's been a lack of, like I was thinking about even for our church and people that I get to pastor and lead of just like, hey, who has read any books on this yeah. topic? And it's and there's good people who just have no knowledge of the situ- of situations, have no knowledge of what they even think. Because if you've read nothing on the topic, if you don't know any people of color, you're going to put your foot in your mouth in ways that you don't even know that you are. And so that, that's what's been difficult is is I think even for me when the church, like even our church, there's all sorts of societal issues going on that are wrong and unbiblical that we don't speak out against. Right? There's all sorts of things happening currently. And this is the question I ask. How often should we speak out against that? And what communicates genuine denouncing of that and what doesn't? Mm. And I think that's what's hard about it is that depending on the current moment, and that's where I think the church gets hung up. It's not because it doesn't—honestly, it doesn't condemn racism. I think it's because, wait, we don't normally speak up against atrocities. Why should we speak now? And it's not that we don't think it's wrong. It's now how do we do it in a way that communicates? We think that's wrong. We think, oh, you know what I'm saying? So it becomes this situation where there's a lot of factors at play. And I think when you are—from what I can tell, and Mitch, I'd love to hear how you experience this. Mm -hmm. From what I can tell, it's when you're a person of color in that moment, you're like, but you're still not speaking to me about what you think about me. And I think that's where the church has, has, in some ways, has let complexity get in the way of faithfulness to a person in front of them. And I'm like, that, and that's the part where I'm like, 
I feel for the church and I feel for my, you know, kind of our own predicament we find ourselves in as pastors, but also that the complexity doesn't negate the need to speak into something. 100%. But I think that that's where the church has gotten hung up a lot. And I think, can that complexity be a cover for racism? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the complexity can also be a cover for ignorance and not knowing what to do in the moment. I would actually, for you to speak into that of like how, when you're in this moment, you're a black man, yeah. right? So you're in this moment. You're, I mean, yeah. Jimmy even preached on this yesterday. I thought it was so good. Mm-hmm. When you're sitting in that moment, how are you interpreting? Did you feel like there was a lag? Did you feel like there, did, did you want the church to keep up with, I don't know, whatever tech company, pick it, you know, yeah. whatever. Like, I'm curious how, how all that sort of the framework that Ross gave, kind of what my perspective, when you hear that, what does that do for you? What does that yeah. make you feel? What is that? Yeah, a lot of times conversations about race with white Christians like tend to go to this more intellectual mm-hmm. like kind of thing. It's like if this is true, then that means that this is also true. Therefore, you know, people use this because I don't know, a good example is critical race theory. Right. And, you know, if anything's tied to critical race theory, then you know, it's unbiblical and against the gospel, and therefore we're, we're not going to talk about it and we're not going to address the things that this says about our fallen world. And a lot of times my conversations always go to the intellectual side with white Christians, but I think what is missed is that race is really felt. Like I wake up in the morning and, like, I know that I'm black. I know that I'm a black man. Therefore, I have to do things differently. Like if I get pulled over, like I'm a black man. So my mom has taught me since I was 16 to put my wallet on a dash and my hands on a steering wheel. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these things are felt and therefore can't really like be used in an argument against someone who is just wanting to to talk about the intellectual side and mm. all these different things like critical race theory. or But what I mean to say with all that is that I felt, I remember when Ahmaud Arbery, the news came out about that and the video came out about that. It was the week before I turned 27, which is the same age of Ahmaud Arbery. And then his birthday was the week after. And... I remember around this time during the pandemic, I would go out and run. During that time, finding out about that news, and then the week after, uh, finding out about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and just those situations, I really went into, like, really hard, I guess, phase of depression. Hmm. I think I was just so triggered by so many different things. So I would look Hmm. on social media and scroll through social media, and I'm, I'm seeing all these people putting up their posts like Run With Mod, that hashtag, or Black Lives Matter, and things like that. And, you know, that was kind of the start of just that month of May that just brought so much trauma to so many black people. But, you know, the tech companies and the athletes, like the NBA, like, mm-hmm. they're posting first. You know, what is hard for me to see at that time is that, you know, this is very multi-level organization, you know, that has parts of their organizations, like sectors that like will that respond to these things and like will make sure media posts get out. My first 
thing that I'm looking at is social media, and it seems like all of these people are responding first and fast. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, where's where's our church? Where yeah. are other churches? Like, how are we going to respond? And yeah. of course, we did respond. Yeah. But yeah. looking back on it, I see that a lot of brands and a lot of churches, a lot of people in general will just ride the wave of whatever they think is, you know, the next big thing in our culture. So I think, sadly, a lot of organizations and churches even responded mm-hmm. without actual repentance, without actual yeah. acknowledgement of the things that they've done in the past. Like, I, I even saw, you know, some seminaries that have never repented for racist actions that they've done in the past, but that maybe posted about these things. We saw big figures who've done racist things in the past that are very notable, post about these things and then get called out for it. So what I see now in hindsight Mm -hmm. is that that's that's not the true indicator of a repentant heart. So... But yeah, that's that's kind of where I was at yeah, that well, entire time. You know, and I think that's really helpful, even what you're saying, because I think even the question and the way our culture works is I think it's good for everyone to recognize immediacy is not the only way to judge if something is legit, right? Because I think one of the things we were on a phone call, Ross and I, with some black leaders in Austin, and one of the she had this great line. She said, when everything was happening, all the posts were coming out. The way she interpreted it was, she literally said, "We'll see who still cares about this come Labor Day." Yep. And it was a, and I thought she was. It was a really wise statement for her to say because she's like, I'm, "I appreciate all the public support, but we'll see when it comes to actual like conversations and learning and growing together if it'll still be a thing churches care about." And I think that's that's something just for all of us to consider is immediacy and quickness is part of what it means to be a people of justice. But also to be a genuine people of justice is to say sometimes there will be situations not what is – and it's not a question of whether or not you condemn racism. It's a question of how do you actually solve a problem? How do you actually deepen a community? How do you actually – for us especially because we're primarily church leaders, not not political yeah. leaders. It's how do we help our church be more like the kingdom of God in yeah. ways that it's not now. And so I, I think that's what's been helpful for me. Is we've had these conversations to saying, I think immediacy is helpful for mourning and grief and lament. Yeah. I think it's the process of learning and loving takes a longer period of time. And sometimes that will mean less public and more private sort of interactions mm. and conversations. Okay. And I think that's where social media makes everything has to be on a stage for it to count. And I think what we have to be as people of God is say, man, we're a mustard seed sort of people where working is going to be slow and steady and silent sometimes before you see the tree on the other side of it. And I think even in this conversation, there's so much unpacking and conversations to have happen that to do them publicly would actually be a disservice to the actual long-term goal that we have. But again, it, it doesn't mean that people's desires for public denunciation and affirmation is unfounded. It means I know where I understand why, and I think we want to engage those moments carefully and thoughtfully, but also going, you realize there are some times where for me to do what people would want me to do in the moment is going to hurt us for the long-term benefit that that we all want. And I think that's the hard place that pastors are put in now is to say, what does it mean to solve deep, deep, deep generational problems? I mean, I feel that tension a ton of going, there's, there's denouncing and there's building. And I think those two things kind of come in conflict a lot when we're moving forward and trying to think about what it means to be the church in this, in this moment and in this topic. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, like you say, 2020 had um, some unique factors to it. None of this is justification. I, I, I really feel your pain, Mitchell, and empathize with you. Uh, it's obviously not my experience, but I empathize with you as, as a brother in the faith, yeah. as a fellow image bearer. My approach has been rightly or wrongly that in the, in the presence of immediate pain, what someone needs is presence more than posting. But then that presence has to actually manifest, right? Which means you actually have to have friendships and relationships that are deep with people who are of different ethnicities uh, to you. And so that, that tends to be where I apply my energy in a season like we went through in May. It's like, okay, where I want to f- apply the, the immediate energy here is in presence because this is how Christian love most meaningfully manifests in a moment like this is actually to be with people and to sit with them in their pain and to lament and grieve and repent of uh, the causes of that pain. But I do see that in 2020 as well, you're going like, well, the only way I'm hearing from someone who represents the church is through a social media post. Mm. I see that fully. I do. You know, uh, I, I, I do. I get it. Uh, I would have some major questions around those big brands and the efficacy of their posts, yeah. but that's a discussion for another day, mm-hmm. and that's that's not a that's not a get out of jail free card for anyone. But but I do have you know I, I do chuckle at mm-hmm. major brands making these stands and then still having foreign kids assemble their sneakers mm. for dollars a day. But like I said, that's a that's a question <laughs> for a different day. No, that's real. <laughs> yeah. Ross, coming to America, I would love to just kind of hear your perspective of how, I guess, the church or churches here in America have dealt with racism Mm. and injustice in in that way versus things that you've experienced in South Africa, which I know there's a lot of stories that you could probably tell, but I would just love to hear of your experience there and maybe how it's influenced your experience here or how America's been so different. I think that would help give us some context for how this manifests here in our churches, like on this side of the world. Mm. Yeah, Mitchell, I mean, this is probably not the right forum for this because this is not lifetime counseling. Um, (laughs) But I kind of lost my confidence in best way forward in some of this stuff for the church because I'm really trying to understand the separation of church and state. Where is that healthy and where is that unhealthy? Mm. So, so I grew up um, under a system of government known as apartheid, which was a, a church-sanctioned system. So I went to a whites-only school in my lifetime. And the system of education that promoted that was called Christian National Education. Mm. We prayed mm. every morning. We read the Bible every morning and then treated people who were black as subhuman. And that for me is like this conflation of church and state, mm. right, that gets like totally wrapped into and it's wicked and it's evil. And I grew up in a church that tried to do something to protest against that, but against the machinery of the state. Didn't do enough, to be honest. But I had a, a family that really rebelled against it with everything that they had. And they, they, they taught me a lot of what meaningful pushback against the state looks like in a Christ-honoring way. And so that has influenced me in a big way. And I've struggled to actually play that out in an American way because, again, here in the States, church and state seems so conflated. It seems so pushed together that that we've lost our ability to be a resident alien people, that unless we are kind of in cahoots with the powers that be and dominating society from a political perspective, then we feel like Christianity has nothing to say back to the world, like that's our only avenue. 
what I would love to see is a church rising up in the States post the debacle of 2020 that lives as resident alien outsiders of mm. the state and its machinations and so can speak against it, but from a place of integrity as kind of a blessed nuisance of sorts. Yeah. You know, Ar Archbishop Desmond Tutu spoke about this quite a lot, uh, of the church as like a blessed nuisance of people. They're blessed, so they are the ones looking after the poor and the outcast and the marginalized. And so the state sees that and needs them, but they're a nuisance. They're continually calling them mm. on their immorality, on their injustice, and modeling a different way, right? Living a different way. I would love for us to spend way less effort trying to control things politically and way more effort trying to be the people of God mm. who live a better way, who live a more just society. I don't know what's going to be the best way for us through the big levers of the state and society to create more just societies, but I do know how to create a more just church. And I really think that that's where we need to be applying some of our energy. Now, I'm full of tension on that, right? Mm. Because there are some things that if I could go back and relive my teenage years, for instance, as apartheid started to crumble, should have been more active in the face of just blatant evil and just being like, this is, this is evil. We can all see that it's evil. We've got to tear it down. What does that look like through a Christian lens? I don't know. I'm, I'm studying through church history, seeing people who did it well and trying to be part of that and trying to live that way. So that's a long convoluted answer to say, man, I really dream of the people of God being the people of God. And I think the answer to so many of the fractures in society is a truly unified and diverse church. That is going to take long, hard, relational, intense and systemic work because we, we swim in water, we don't realize it's water. And so we, we, we live in broken systems, we don't realize that they're broken until someone points them out to us. And it's yeah. going to take the work of pulling those down. I do think we've got to clean our house first though. And so we've got to break down those systems inside the church before we're going to have that kind of blessed nuisance authority to be able to fully break them down in society. Again, I, I'm so weary of that feeling like a cop out of us saying like, oh, that means there's nothing to do. No, there's so much to do. Mm. The American church, that has been my experience, is more racially divided than any other church group that I've seen and I'm from South Africa. <laughs> mm. I'm from a place that had yeah. apartheid in my generation. And the attitudes of polarization that I've seen in the States have been mind-blowing to me along racial lines. That breaks my heart, but it's, uh, it, it puts a fire in my, in my belly to go like, man, there's so much to be done. Yeah. There's so much to be done. Ross, how, how do you I'm, – I'm fascinated by that. How do you think – because I get the like – how do we become a just church? How do we do mm. that as a church? You know, obviously, we're never going to be as perfect or as, as we'd want to be. We're always going to be aspiring to a kingdom that still has yet to come in some ways. And again, I'd be interested from your experience in apartheid and growing up in South Africa and being a pastor, trying to, un, some ways, un, in a local way, undo some systemic yeah. things that have happened. What do you think it means to simultaneous, I guess, to be working on the church and as you become, like, yeah. what does it mean to be a new, and I guess as you've helped people, what does that nuisance piece yeah. look like? Like, what is there a principle that can yeah. help form us in that? Yeah. Yeah, I think we need to, you know, educate people on history, especially. History is so helpful yeah. in understanding future trajectories. So some of the stuff that the church did or didn't do in South Africa that was effective or ineffective is... You know, so, so 1994 comes in South Africa, a new democratic government, and this birth of this dream of this rainbow nation, right? But it's fractured. You've got all these years of, of apartheid and the oppression and the violence that's perpetrated against people, and, and the church has participated actively in that. 
And so what do you do? So Archbishop Desmond Tutu establishes the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and invites churches to come repent. Come, come repent. And most of them didn't. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like, what a failure. Yeah. Church that I was part of with my parents, their lead pastor, against the wishes of his congregants, went and made a representation to the Truth and Reconciliation mm. Commission, said, we are guilty. Mm. Before the Lord and before the law, we didn't do enough. We are sorry. Please forgive us. Mm. What a moment, right? Yeah. But that's just a moment. That sets yeah. you then on a trajectory. Yeah. But what a moment. Like, some... Sectors of the church in the U.S. have done that. Many haven't. Many still resist that today. Just yeah. that simple thing to say, like, that was abhorrent. Yeah. And it set in place systems that are abhorrent today. Mm-hmm. We're really sorry. Yeah. And we want to help undo those. Yeah. That, for me, is the nuisance part yeah. of us going, recognizing systems through educating our people, actually helping to define and understand those systems. Because a lot of the tension today is lack of definition. Yeah. I'm persuaded by it. Not yeah. all of it. Yeah. Some of it. Yeah helping to define those areas of injustice and then helping through the mechanisms of the church. So not the mechanisms of empire, of control and violence, but through the mechanisms of neighbor love and subtly under, undermining the, the, the currents of the empire. And when I say empire, it's not a Star Wars reference, but it, it fits. <laughs> but, you know, anything that's about dominance, political yeah. force, undercutting that through neighbor love, that's the nuisance part yeah. uh, for me. Yeah. I'm saying like, no, no, that's not true. Here's yeah. where these systems are unjust, and here's how we'll show you how to undo them. Yeah. And in that area, we will run at a pace ahead of you. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to be a nuisance. Mm-hmm. We might post on social media later than you, but we're going to show you how it's done. That's yeah. good. We're, we're yeah. going to undo these systems yeah. in a way that you can't do, that yeah. we can do because we have a view of neighbor love that you don't have yeah. and a view of human dignity that you don't have. Mm-hmm. That sounds naive, I know, but that's what that's yeah. what I want us to commit yeah. our lives to. Amen. You know? no, those are the kind of people I want us to be. Well, man, Ross, that's so good. When I think, and Mitchell, I'd love to hear how what he says that, like what what it does in you. I think for me, that really is the piece that 2020 revealed was there's always moments. I mean, I think of Emmett Till in 1955, right? There's always moments where a, in American history where there has been an awful murder of a black man where the church goes, oh, my gosh, mm. there's something here. Like mm. Emmett Till's face mm. on the cover of newspapers mm. made everyone revolt mm. and go, something mm. should change. Because his mom wanted everyone to see mm. what happened to him. And you have, like you said, you have these moments where there's an opportunity yeah. for the church to recognize what, what she's been a part of, to recognize how she's failed. And some churches do that and some churches yeah. don't. It's funny for a faith that is built on saying sorry to God. It's like yeah. our whole faith is built on what's the fundamental thing you do? I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. Like that is the fundamental claim. And what when it comes to these conversations, I I am stunned. I can feel it in my own flesh. Yeah. I'm no not any less sinful than anybody yeah. else, my own pride. Yeah. But our unwillingness to say I'm sorry and I'm hurting with you, Mitchell, or whoever else, because I'm fearful that you'll take I'm sorry right. and turn it into some agenda that I'm not I'm not comfortable with. Right. So Mitch, I'm curious for you as as we're talking about this again, like what what's resonating, what's what's going on in you as we're even having these conversations. Yeah. Thanks for asking. There's a lot. I think that you both are so right when it comes to actually doing the things that we're posting about, like bringing action to our repentance. Like, that is repentance. Like, it's the turn into moving forward that is the full turn of repentance. So 
for us, I'm really interested to see where we're at as a local church at the Austin Stone in May mm-hmm. 2021, mm-hmm. because that's going to show was our repentance true. And I think that's for every individual in every church here in America that that has walked through this entire pandemic and the racial injustice and just there's so much that makes this season like yeah. just so insane yeah. and so crazy. And uh, we could even talk about the impact with political election and race and during yeah. a pandemic and just kind of all of those different things. But yeah, I'm really interested to see in May 2021 mm. where all the people who posted the black squares on Instagram, mm-hmm. where all those companies, like, what have they changed? Like, I love your example of there's companies who post it who are literally using child labor in really terrible, inhumane ways overseas to make money and make their clothing and make their apparel and whatnot. In May 2021, is that done? Like, are those families cared for? For us, I've seen our church take some really good steps. Like, uh, I've seen our leadership and staff really change as far as even a number of Black people that are on staff in the past several months. And that's been super encouraging to me. You know, being being on the inside, like, I know that that's an intentional thing that we're doing. Mm. But by May 2021, what would— be encouraging to me as a black person. And and something that I've had to think about a lot, and I've told Tyler this, is that there's a certain calling on me as a black ministry leader Mm -hmm. at a predominantly white church. And it's something that I know that I'm choosing to engage Mm -hmm. in. And I know that when these things happen, like May and racial injustice— that there's a certain type of battle and a certain type of maybe pain or maybe just tension that I have to kind of like deal with yeah. being a part of predominantly white church that I need to continue to ask God, like, is this like something that you've called me to do here mm-hmm. to help our church grow in this way? But yeah, yeah, I'm really interested to see where we're at in May 2021 and if we've actually taken those steps to grow, to repent, and to learn, and actually really take action in our city. So as far as defining terms, I I think that that's really, really good. I think that we need that. Ross, when when you think about, like, the defining terms, because I think this will also help me in, like, Mm -hmm. you know, responding to your question, Tyler, what are the different terms that you think we as people of the church, like, need to understand and maybe not be on the same page about, but just, like, have that same definition for, like, yeah. w- what are the important ones? Yeah. So so you've referenced already, like, well, what about CRT? You know, like, well, what about it? You know, mm-hmm. but if you don't define terms, then then you get stuck in the whataboutisms all the time. Yep. You can't make advance. So. so CRT and intersectionality, sure, define those. There's good definitions for those, actually, but articulate them. When we say justice, what do we mean? Mm-hmm. What is justice? Now, I think there is a magnificent biblical framework for what justice is, and that's the topic of a different podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd love to be part of that if you'd invite (laughs) me back. (laughs) But it takes some time. So when we say justice and the flip side of it, injustice, what do we mean? Right? Mm -hmm. That's just helpful just for us to draw some lines because then there's some things that we're saying, no, that's an injustice. If that's what justice is, therefore that is an injustice. Therefore, it needs to be addressed in a more Mm -hmm. just way. It just gives you the tools to be able to do that. Race. 
what is race? We have a very modern construct of race. It's yeah. something that was invented by white supremacy yeah. and now is the tool that we use. I don't think we're going to beat this system with the same tools that it gave us, right? I, I think yeah. we're going to have to go back and, and reflect. So when we say race, well, what do we mean? When we say ethnicity, what do we mean? Mm -hmm. When we say racism, what do we mean? I found that in conversations with people who are very far apart here in the U.S., they're not even using the same definition of mm -hmm. racism. Yeah. And so I'm going like, well, if we can't, you're very passionate over here, you're very passionate over here, but if we could actually build a bridge of understanding between you, you might find that there's more together than, and maybe not, maybe yeah. you still mm -hmm. remain divided, but mm -hmm. they're not even using the same definition of racism. So yeah. then how do you fix it, right? Yeah. If yeah. you're not even trying to fix the same thing. Right. So some people are saying like, well, I don't say the N word, therefore I'm not racist. I'm like, mm. okay, I mean, that's one definition. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. is it, right. And by that, then there's a simple fix, don't yeah. say the N word, but that's right. not the definition of racism that your brother or sister over here is using, yeah. right? Yeah. And so then the fix is different. And that's where a lot of things come in. Things like white supremacy. I think we've rolled white supremacy into whiteness and I think it's unhelpful. I think it's a term that the church needs to either, whiteness especially, needs to either define or discard. Mm -hmm. I think it's a weapon of the world because it cannot be universally applicable because, again, white race is a social construct that is recent and isn't universally true. So let's not lump people together yeah. then. If we mean white supremacy, if we mean white normalcy, let's say those things mm -hmm. and let's counter them and yeah. let's combat them. Let's not use another term that isn't clearly defined or understood. Um, or universally applicable across everyone who would then share being defined by it, right? Mm -hmm. So if if you're a, a person who is Caucasian, right, white, but growing up in uh, rural Bulgaria, mm -hmm. the concept of whiteness would be abhorrent to you. And so therefore we need better definitions. So those, those would be some that I'd start with and say that we, we need to work with those. I mean, you had asked me a question a while ago, like, so what does the Bible say about race? And the answer to that question is very difficult. It says a lot and a little. Mm -hmm. Under our current constructs of race, it says very little. Yeah. Under a biblical definition and understanding of people groups and ethnicities, oh, it says so, so much. Mm -hmm. And that plays into a conversation of race in a very powerful way. Yeah. But it's not. And I know I'm doing the exact thing that you've said your white brothers do now over intellectualizing things. And, no, I, yeah, and yeah. I understand that. But I promise I do feel this at a heart level. You know, one of the areas where the church can help here yeah. is defining terms. You know, Rich Velotis just uh, released a book on emotionally healthy spirituality. But he's got a chapter on living a life of racial justice almost as a spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. And the first 10 pages of that chapter, he just defines terms. Mm. I didn't even agree with all these definitions. But you know how helpful it was to but just now go you like, know what he's talking you about. say that, you mean that? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Now we're on the same page. Now yeah. I can understand what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. And that is a loving act. That is actually neighbor love saying, when I say this, I mean this. Mm -hmm. That is a definition to be understood. That, that is a, an attempt to be understood. And that is very helpful. So those yeah. would be some of the ones I'd start with, Mitchell. That's really And that's great. where the church has to do the hard work, man. That's not glamorous, mm -hmm. but like that's yeah. hard work. We have to go back to our Bibles and go like, when we say this, what do we mean? Yeah. And as we're, and that's what I think is the 2020 was it was hard to do some of those things because the moment required lamenting and mourning. Yes. And anyone who has any emotional intelligence in a moment, when you're crying, I shouldn't be defining terms. 100%. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So but the immediate response that's right. isn't that. So I said the immediate response is presence. That's right. Right? And compassion. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and empathy. That is right. biblical definition of, of neighbor love. And so we've got to do that at the start. And then you've got to do the hard work. Well, and that's one of the things that I think 
you know, obviously growing up white in America in the Dallas area, right? Like I think I had to audit my the life. <laughs> I had to do a lot of auditing of, of where I interpret and my dad's a police officer. Mm-hmm. And so I have all these different like worldviews that have shaped me and I've had yeah. to do so much sort of relearning what does yeah. it mean to be white in this context? Because yeah. you don't think about it because yeah. you're the one who has, I'm the one who has all the benefit in, in a moment. And when you're the one, when you're the one who has, I remember this love, I love this great, like, uh, I love SNL. And <laughs> and this is going to tie in great, so trust <laughs> me. But the, I remember they asked Seth Meyers, who's a head writer, they're like, hey, is I hear, you know, SNL can be pretty political and pretty difficult to navigate there. He's like, He's like, I was the head writer, so I don't have to deal with any of that stuff. <laughs> and so right. kind of the idea is like when you're the one in, who's benefiting from the system, you're like, yeah. I don't really think about it yeah. much, you know? Yeah. And so for me, growing up in that context, I haven't thought about it yeah. much. So my kind of awakening in this was in 2016, Yeah, the shootings of Philando Castile yeah. and Al Sterling. And those, yeah. so, I mean, again, this is on repeat for the church. is isn't like this is yeah. a new thing. And when that happened and then there was a shooting of the Dallas police officers— and yeah. my dad being a Dallas police officer was right. doing all these things in me. And it made me have to start learning in ways that I'd never learned before with humility and posture that I'd never had on the topic. Like I've heard about yeah. racism and I knew it was wrong, yeah. but I hadn't really done the actual hard work of me having to go, wow, that's a racist slur when I was seven sure. that I didn't even think about. And that's yeah. and all and and so I've had to learn so much through the process. I think what's hard, I'll just say from my experience with white Christians. What's I think the thing that's hard for us because the culture I grew up in, there's not a whole lot of lament and being sad is not a thing we know how to do. No. It just isn't, just to be really honest. Move mm. past it. Let's be strong. Let's fix problems, right? Yeah. And in some ways, emotions are not seen as a part of the solution. It's yeah. seen as a doesn't you do it, but it's not part of the solution, yeah. right? Yeah. I think, like you're saying, as I'm working hard as a pastor to define terms and what does justice mean and what does re- I mean, what does repentance mean to me is right. a massive thing right. because yeah. because repentance to me is essential for salvation. You cannot be saved without repentance. And so when we define repentance all sorts of ways, I get very uncomfortable because I'm like, yeah. this is this is huge what we're saying right now, what yeah. it means to repent, right? Yeah. But I think as I'm learning, what I've had to do is as I'm building a world in my mind and trying to help our church do that, I have to keep learning how to lament as I learn. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I've experienced in my own white sort of like growth is I have to keep mourning even as I learn and yeah. I kind of want to be past it. Yeah. I, I want to, if something happens in the world and someone who I know, Mitchell, is, is going through a tough time. There's this pride in me that doesn't want to have to sit and re-mourn and re-grieve right. racism. Yeah. I want to, like, can we be done with that? And that's my own pride and sin. Yeah. But yeah. I think that's what's part of the problem is going, there is this sort of impatience. Where we, yeah. we, can we get past the grieving part and get yeah. into the fixing part? Yeah. And I think part of the fixing is the grieving, right? Yeah. They're not yeah. they're not independent from one another. Yeah. But then the grieving has to go into actually building. Sure. And I think the, to build something requires way more precision than to tear something down. Yeah. To tear something down just requires dynamite and explode it. But to rebuild a building, you, ha- you need very, you need precise terms. You need precise discipleship. You need education. So the skills and tools needed to grieve well and to build well in some ways are different because presence is presence. Mm. And that's where relational proximity with people who don't share your ethnicity yeah is really important because you get to kind of, in some ways, this is why I think the church always needs cross-cultural conversations to purify what it means for the gospel to be the gospel, right? That's Acts 15. It's like you start bringing Gentiles into the church, they have to go, 
What does it mean to obey the law? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I think that's what's helpful about it is it helps me go, what are my own personal and cultural kind of norms that I've attached to yeah. what it means to be faithful? Yeah, 100%. That now I get to kind of purify the gospel by actually having conversations about race and about injustice, and it makes us better. Yeah. But I don't know that none of us want to do the slow work of growth, and that's what's hard about it. It's like sanctification is so slow, and even in this area, all of us— get impatient with the slowness of people's sanctification, but it's harder when people seem to not want to be sanctified and not want to grow in this area. And that's what I feel is I don't want zeal without knowledge to be good either. I want zeal rooted in knowledge and in history and in these different things. And I think that's where it's—I don't want, like, cultural moments to think that that's discipling people. Cultural moments wake people up, but they don't form them in the ways that we're meant meant to form people. All I say is I think the defining of terms and educating people around what the Bible actually says and doesn't say, and I'll be done for this. I think what's hard about the Scripture sometimes is they don't give us the specificity we'd like, and it's not going to tell us, in this moment, this is biblical justice. And that's what I find hard about these conversations is everyone or different tribes are like, we have what it means to be biblically just in this moment. And I want to go, I think you have, that is a way to be just, and that's where I think we get it gets really confusing is what it means to en- enact justice, the actual specifics of it. Is it the government should do it? Is it the church should do it? Do you do it by raising taxes? Do you do it by funding businesses? Do you... And that is where I think we get really hung up on, well, whose definition in this moment is right about what justice is? And that's where if you don't have conversations relationship previous, it's really hard yeah. to move forward together. For our church, the Austin Stone, what would be our next step as far as fighting racial injustice and being just as a church in the city of Austin and being a light to the world, but specifically in light of all that's happened this year with race? You two, as elders of our church, where are we going? What are we doing even right now? Mm-hmm. Well, when we outlined a statement last year, we spoke of four L's, as cheesy as that might sound, that they really are things that we feel at a convictional level, and that we should listen and uh, learn and lament and live a life of love. And, you know, a lot of this year has been in the listening and learning phase. Mm -hmm. We've already put key leaders through a bunch of education on history and church's complicity, um, uh, you know, in the history of America in terms of systemic racism. We're we're helping to to listen to other churches in the city. So Tyler already referenced there's been a few of us on quite a few calls, actually, which Mm -hmm. has been so helpful to hear of churches who have leaders who are not white, incredible leaders who have been faithful in the city for so, so long, who are biblically faithful, who have been and walking this walk for a long, long time. And to hear from them and to hear their experiences has been a listening and a learning experience for for me and for many other leaders. We've settled on a third party who's going to come in and teach our staff and understand our staff culture and help us to see the blind spots that we don't see in terms Mm. of being a welcoming and inclusive and uh, and diverse uh, space where leaders are developed from all sorts of backgrounds. And so I'm looking forward to that. That will be both a listening Mm -hmm. and a learning and I'm sure a lamenting Mm. experience. 
then we're, we're preaching on race um, mm-hmm. this year in January on MLK Sunday, the day before MLK Day. So we'll do that as part of our Love the City initiative mm-hmm. and working hard with our Love the City partners in terms of how we can uplift uh, other churches and organizations that are fighting for racial justice in, in a biblical manner in our city. So those are kind of the key things that I can think of, Tyler, that are happening right yeah. now. But uh, those, of course, have ongoing you know, impact in, in the life of the church because as you listen, as you learn, as you mm-hmm. lament, then you're starting to to build systems so that you can live that life of love going forward. So. Mm. Yeah, those are, I mean, all those things are true. And I think it's been, I think even for me, it's been, I'm so, I've been so thankful for all that God has through the difficulty of 2020, all the ways he's used it to grow us and shape us and change us in ways that, you know, we wouldn't have seen or or maybe wanted, but didn't, you know how this works. There's desires, and then there's the ability to carry desires out. And God used 2020 to prune our church in yeah. so many ways. And I think race has been one of the major ones where we've had to, I know me and Ross have been on individually and together in conversations where it's been just really hard and really sad and have to mourn with people. And so I think that's part of the process too, is I think what it's helped do is as we continue to do all the things that Ross just listed, which are all true, mm. that is forging relationships in a way that that I don't know we would have gotten otherwise. And I think it's it's forged, you know, really vulnerable moments with men and women of color in our church, uh, with us to have conversations that shape you. Yeah. Those personal moments is what, you know, all the hope of sermons and the hope of third parties coming in, the hope of all these things is that they would have these personal moments where the Holy Spirit forms us in unique ways to become the people God wants us to be, right? Mm-hmm. And that we would be the Ephesians 3 sort of manifold wisdom of God being expressed through the church. And I think that's where, with that statement we released, which if you haven't read that statement, I would really encourage you to read that statement that we released in, in this summer. And there's books associated with it to start reading and learning so that Again, our loving is informed and it's full-hearted and not half-hearted, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think everything. I think Ross, those are all all true and right. I think it's and I think that's what it's done for me. It's I've just I've had this has almost sped up my own growth and development in this yeah. area in ways that it what man meant for evil, God meant for good, and what He means for good is to make His church be more like His Son, and mm-hmm. that I think it's forged us to deal with relational sort of like vulnerability that I think as we've all wanted, but this year, like only 2020 good has in some ways opened our, all of our hearts up in a way that it's messier for sure, but I think it's better. We're better for it. And yeah. I think even yeah. now looking back over it, I'm like, even between white leaders together, like me and yeah. Ross have had candid conversations around this topic because of t- the things that are going on, because mm-hmm. of the injustice that we see. Me and you, Mitchell, have had conversations mm-hmm. because of it. You and Scott, like, it's forced all of us into, like, relational depth that we probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah. And so in that way, what I'm hopeful moving forward, that all that God worked through that is seeds for the future of what will be. Yeah. You know? But I think I think it's when you're in the thick of it and you're getting pruned and you're getting— working through difficult things, all you can see is how messy and it feels like we're getting nowhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what I'm seeing is, no, no, God was working all that to to make us interact in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. And I think it's going to produce so much fruit going forward. Um, and I think just particularly to encourage you and thank you, Mitchell, yeah, like it always hits our leaders of color and men and women of color in our church harder than it hits us. And so you've had to bear more than I've had to bear. Yeah. And I think that's what I've you know, looking back, I've been so thankful for the men of color at our church 
who have endured with us and loved us and been honest with us and just have shown themselves to be just full of the Spirit. And God has used powerfully to shape our whole church, not just me yeah. and Ross, our whole church. Yeah. And I think that's something to be commended and to be like applauded because I know this year has been like you said, you were in a state of depression yeah. in, in the spring. And, and again, me and Ross have had those conversations that no one will know about where we get to hear where people actually are. Mm -hmm. And I have just been so encouraged by those who have stuck with our church. Not, and I don't want to say us, like even with me and Ross, like just our church have like stayed faithful in the midst of everything gnawing at them to say, give up, give up. Yeah. Man, thank you for that, Tyler. Yeah, when I think of this topic, man, there's so much more. Like it's, it's like we're just like oh yeah, slightly opening the can with this. And but there are a couple more questions. I, I just want to hear from you, Ross, for our college ministry and yeah. our church. I mean, are predominantly white. For the white people listening mm. to this right now, you said one of our four L's is lament. Yeah. For us as a church and for our individuals, like our partners, our members at our church, like what does it mean for our church to lament in a congregational way, but also an individual way? And mm. I feel like that's always the L out of the four L's that you yeah. mentioned that is more like ambiguous. Yeah. Like I know what it means to learn. Yeah. I know what it means to listen. Yeah. I know what it means to love and do that well. But what does it mean to lament and why is that important? Yeah. I mean, lament should be the natural heart cry out of any Christ follower when they encounter the chasm between what is and what should be. <laughs> and when we encounter that, wherever we find that, in our own hearts, in society at large, we go like, here's what is and here's what should be in the kingdom of God, that gap should drive out of us a cry of lament. Uh, lament's going to be multifaceted. It's going to have repentance for our parts. It's going to have repentance for the parts of our forebears. And mm. I know that's not popular, but go read Nehemiah. And I know it's complex <laughs> in covenantal language and all of that kind of stuff and representative heads and Christ as our, I get that. I do see the space for people just going like, how we got here yep. is actually wrong yep. <laughs> and reprehensible and it's hurtful and it has ongoing impact for people and I hate that and mm -hmm. I'm sorry for that, right? I think we need to grow in our ability to do that. You know, it, it impacts things like our liturgies, Mitchell. You know, a lot of our songs are, the, the Stone does this very well because we write good lyrics, but a lot of the worship songs today are hyper-individualistic, right? Mm -hmm. And they deal only with what should be instead mm -hmm. of sometimes dealing with what is, yeah. you know? And so um, we'd, we'd do well to go back to the Psalms and go like, well, how many of these deal with lament? Well, an uncomfortable number of them yeah. mm -hmm. deal with the pain of, what is broken individually and collectively. That comes through sermon moments, through teaching moments, through the way we reap, through the way that we read the Bible, through the way that we worship and pray together. The flow of our liturgy should have moments of lament the whole time. So whether or not we need that one big moment, I don't know. I mm. mean, maybe I'm open to the wisdom of that. But part of our Christian experience is always, the, I mean, we believe in systemic sin, right? <laughs> like yeah. we're, the, yeah. we're the people who believe in this, right? We believe that everyone's born into this. And that should drive lament in our hearts. And so it should be part of our ongoing worship experience. Mm. Tyler, you you mentioned this a little bit, like when, you know, asked the question about, you know, how many Christian authors have you mm -hmm. read on the subject because of that biblical worldview piece? And then when we're discussing lament, like 
if you don't know your Bible, you, it's really hard to figure out what yeah. that actually looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear yeah. this first from you, Tyler, and then from you, Ross. Why is the Bible important when discussing racial injustice and trying to find a mm-hmm. solution mm-hmm. and trying to find a way yeah. uh, to move forward as the white evangelical church? Yeah. I mean, because we want to follow Jesus, you know, and Jesus has makes it clear over and over again that to be his disciples, to abide in his word. Hmm. And I think the Bible has again and again been the place where the Spirit of God shapes God's people to be the faithful witnesses that God wants us to be. And I do think that's what has to be the fundamental reality for everything that we do as a people is to say, I want to know Jesus and follow him faithfully in any and every context of my life because I found him to be better than anything else. So I just trust him. Like, he's risen from the dead. He died for my sins. I want to be where he is. And so I can trust that his word is enough for me. But when it comes to the topic of racism, Ross said, there's a, the Bible has a ton to say about people groups and what it means for the church to be Jesus' blood breaking down the wall of hostility that divided us in Ephesians 2. And the Bible is going to give us wisdom on how to be faithful to him. And I think that's got to be the church's mission to say, we do want to help the world. We do want to bless them. But we think the best blessing to the world is that Jesus would be central and that his way would be prominent. And so the Bible is going to tell me what that way is. I always want Whatever the topic is, I want the scriptures to be the fundamental reality that forms and the highest authority that forms. Mm-hmm. Now, will I read outside sources of the Bible? Of course. Will, will I learn from people who I disagree with? Of course. But I want the authority to be the scriptures because they're going to show me where Jesus is. And again, the fundamental claim of the church is wherever Jesus is, that's where blessing is. Mm-hmm. And we want to be wherever Jesus is. And the way I go after Jesus is to follow his spirit as the spirit leads me through his word. And what I have found in this conversations about this topic, how little people have actually sought the scriptures and Christian thinkers are helpful. They've always been helpful for the church to understand what the scriptures are saying on topics. I just, I mean, I was reading the Beatitudes this morning, and I was just like, nothing about these Beatitudes makes sense to people who are not Christian. What, nothing about them. In my economy, in a Christian economy, is going, that's where blessing is, is wherever Jesus is. And so that's why that may feel like a Jesus juke sort of answer. But I never want Jesus being the central piece of our church and our life ever feeling like a cop-out. We're like, well, no, that that's the beginning and starting place. Mm-hmm and helps interpret where we go. And I'm going to trust that there are times always in God's Word where I'm going to wish He was more clear and He's much more vague. And there's times where I'm going to wish He was much more vague when He's way more clear. And that's the human condition is I don't like what He has to say. And I wish it was different. And I think that's why I have to trust Him to say, if He's left things vague on a particular topic or issue, I have to trust Him that there's going to be a myriad of opinion on how that works. Yeah. And if he's been super clear and I really don't like that he's this clear on this on this issue, I got to trust that he's hemming me in and his, his wisdom and what he has to say. So the day, I, I think the Bible is important because I want to be and I want us to be wherever Jesus is because wherever he is, that's where life is. Yeah, so good. I mean, it's the ultimate source of truth. I mean, which should go without saying in a, on a church podcast, but it doesn't, unfortunately. I'll add something else to it. It's for me the most reliable source of anthropology. So an understanding of what a person is, which is key in this discussion. 
And kind of the three legs of the table that I've used in, in developing a biblical anthropology has been dignity, depravity, and destiny. And all three of those things are essential in our understanding of the racial conversation. So the Bible gives us an idea of human dignity, right? That men and women are imbued with this, this dignity, value, worth, and purpose. It's unique in its perspective of giving that across peoples and people groups, right? But the Bible also tells us about depravity. So it helps us to understand why we sin against each other and why people groups sin against other people groups and, and, and how we build systems around that. It gives us the, the clearest understanding of how sinful we are and how we need to turn to mm. repentance. But then it's also got this image of destiny, which is God's people sanctified from every people, tribe, nation, and tongue at his throne singing. And without that, that forward-looking piece of destiny, then, then this work becomes, you know, overwhelming and people want to bail from it. But with that in mind of like, oh, no, we're just becoming who we actually are yeah. as, as a motivating picture for us. Uh, then that drives us forward. So the Bible for me is the only place I'd go to for an anthropology of what is a human? What is a person? What is their dignity? How does depravity affect them, right? Either from them or towards them. And then what is our common shared destiny? What do we share those things together? That keeps me going in this conversation. Man, Ross, that was really good. I've never heard the three Ds before or 3D's it's table. Co- copyrighted. Table. Um, copyrighted. Some, some material arriving shortly. So yeah. don't, don't steal it and write a book before I can. <laughs> oh, that's so Everyone funny. listening, please. I'm going to tweet Seriously, it out real don't. quick. <laughs> hey, guys, can we just really hype 3D's? Yeah. It's our next sermon series. That's exactly right. Ross, thank you so much for coming to the green room and talking about this with us. Of course, this will not be the last time that we talk about race. This is a multifaceted issue that we're dealing with, especially as the American church, and we want to make sure to equip the people of our church and how to do this well yeah. and how yeah. to do it yeah. as we follow Jesus. I just love that so much, yeah. Tyler. Like, wherever Jesus is, we want to be, yeah. and I love that. Ross, can you pray us out and yeah. specifically— Pray for the listeners who are white. Yeah. We're like, man, what yeah. I do? But then also um, our listeners who are minority and, and yeah. black. Yeah. We're listening and like, man, yeah. I want to see this happen yeah. now. Like I'm in that camp too. So yeah, it's man. also praying for me as well. <laughs> yeah, um, but just praying us out and yeah. we'll be done. Yeah. Can I, I'll just say a statement just before before I do, just especially to the, to, to the white college kids out there. I, I used to be grieved and affronted by the idea of my own white skin, right? And the privilege that I, people said was attached to that I wanted to refute for a while. And I don't anymore. I, mm. I view race now, ethnicity, as one of the things that God entrusts us to steward. Yeah. And so I view my life as stewardship. That's what I'm teaching my, mm. my white kids. I'm saying, guys, by God's providence, he saw fit in his wisdom and kindness for you to be born with this skin tone. You didn't choose this, right? This is what you got. What you do next really matters. Yep. And so the way I introduce myself when I'm speaking at conferences or whatever is that I was, I'm a white male South African, which means I was born on the right side of privilege and the wrong side of history. Mm. Now, what am I going to do? That's good. What am I going to do? Yep. How am I going to steward that? God in his wisdom, I believe, is wise, said, that's who you are. That's who you are, kid. All right? Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I would just say to people, hey, don't deflect that. Don't fight that. Don't yep. what about that. Go like... Now what are you going to do? That's yep. who you are. Now what are you going to do? Mm. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, what a privilege. What a privilege to sit in this room to record this. What a privilege to think that anyone would listen to this. I know there would be disagreements and pushbacks and, and areas where greater clarity is, is needed. I know that for, for sure. I feel 
weak willed in my offerings most days, and today is no different. And so I pray that you would take some of what we've discussed and use it for your glory. It's a weak effort, but I pray that you would use it to advance your church and to grow courage and to bring repentance where necessary and, and to strengthen those who feel weak and downcast. Lord, I pray that you would you would use it as a source of encouragement for you and for, for your purposes in and through the church. I want to thank you for Mitchell. I want to thank you for the leader that he is in our mm-hmm. church. I want to thank you for his patience and his long suffering and his kindness and his gentleness and the fruit of the spirit that you've manifested in him that you've used to bless me and many others. Thank yep. you for what's being built in the in the college ministry, Father. I pray for those kids so much potential. Oh, so much potential. Yep. Lord, I pray that they would steward it well, the various resources that you've given them. I pray for our, our young white college kids um, who are trying to figure out what to do with being white in America. Mm. Our Lord, help them to steward it well. Help them to be people who are humble. Help them to be people who make their circles larger yeah. and who share in any blessing that they have that comes their way. Father, I pray that they would share that faithfully and, and liberally, who share in any, even if there's ill-gotten privilege, Father, who fight against that by sharing that mm. and by sharing that liberally for your good and for your glory and your fame. I pray that they steward well the resources that you've given them, whatever those might be. Yeah. Lord, I pray for our young college students uh, of color in, in Texas in a difficult place and then and then in a minority in a largely white church. Father, I pray that you help them to know that you are the God who sees mm. and I pray that you provide them friends who see them, yeah. who see them and their uh, complex experiences, Father, and their, their many different backgrounds that you use to weave this magnificent tapestry of a diverse kingdom yeah. where you point to your glory and fame. I pray that you would encourage the downhearted pray that you would provide real and meaningful friendships and powerful gifting, powerful, mm-hmm. powerful gifting mm-hmm. that we might be able to see unleashed for, for the glory of God and for the advance of the church. Mm-hmm. Lord, make us a blessed nuisance in our society. Help us do the blessed work of neighbor love, the hard work behind the scenes of figuring out what it looks like to love each other and make us a nuisance to Mm. the principalities and powers of this world um, so that we would kick in the gates of hell in a way that confounds the devil and in a way that subverts the powers that be and in a way that expands your kingdom and help us to have the energy to continue to do that until we are all gathered around that wonderful multicultural worship experience at the foot of your throne that day cannot come quickly enough, Lord. In the meantime, make us a more just, a more kind, a more patient, a more loving, a more biblical, gospel-centered people. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for being our guest in the green room. Remember, if you want more vulnerable conversations, share, like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at college underscore Austin Stone. See you next time.